I read an interesting story uh, this week. In 1511, Martin Luther traveled from Wittenberg, Germany to Rome, and he went there with great expectations. Martin Luther was, at the time, a Roman Catholic priest. He went to Rome to meet the Pope, uh, to, to do some business there in the city of Rome, and he went with great expectations. But he returned to Germany very disappointed. In his trip to Rome, he saw a great deal of corruption and worldliness by the so-called Christians that he met along the way. When he re- returned to Wittenberg, he turned his full attention to studying the Scriptures, especially Paul's letter to the Romans. And he said that in that one phrase in Romans chapter one caused him great distress. And I want to I want to quote for you what he said. Martin Luther said this in fifteen eleven. I hated the idea, and then he quotes Romans one. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther said, according to which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. I lived without reproach as a monk, but my conscience was disturbed to its very depths. And all I knew about myself was that I was a sinner. I could not believe that anything I thought or did or prayed satisfied God. I did not love. Nay, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God. And I said, as if it were not enough, that miserable sinners who are eternally lost through their original sin and are crushed again by the Ten Commandments, God Himself adds pain to pain in the Gospel by threatening us with His righteousness and wrath. You see, God put His own righteousness on display when He burned with fury against His Son, Jesus Christ, who bore the burden of every sin, of every man on the cross of Calvary. If our sin were not so sinful, or if the Lord was not so pure as to be completely separated from anything corrupt, then the death of Christ would be a terrible overreaction Luther was angry. Luther responded very powerfully to what he understood of the righteousness of God that was on display when he punished Jesus Christ for our sin. Luther was angry because Luther saw in himself sin and corruption. He could see in himself nothing good. I think today, I fear, that the way that we respond to our sin too often shows just how little we think of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. And so this morning, as we continue our series, Finding Purpose in the Psalms, We turn to Psalm 6. For two weeks I've wrestled with this psalm. 
The psalm, which is an expression of grief over the extreme wrongness of sin and the prospect of the Lord's chastening. Psalm 6 can be divided into four parts. We call them strophes. And I'm going to use an outline for the message this morning. I'm going to share it with you. But we really need to recognize that the ten verses of Psalm 6, they come gushing out of the psalmist's heart with very little refinement. This is an emotional outburst, if you will. And it won't do for us to focus too much on the separate parts. And so I'm going to start this morning by simply saying in a sentence the central theme of this psalm. And this is what I want to keep in mind as we go through this this morning. This is the one thing we need to take away from Psalm 6. Sin's crushing guilt ought to drive us to fall at God's feet pleading for mercy. Sin's crushing guilt ought to drive us to fall at God's feet, pleading for His mercy. See, our world today would suggest to us that guilt is a foreign thing, an alien thing to our human condition. Guilt is something that our society has constructed. Guilt is something that we have decided upon. But I would submit to you this morning that guilt... Far from being a hurtful thing to us, guilt is intended to do one thing, and it is to drive us to the cross of Christ. We ought to feel guilt over sin. And that guilt ought to drive us to His feet, pleading for mercy. Let's read... Psalm 6. And then I'd like to pray, and then I want to just jump in and try to follow this psalm to the end. He says in verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me. All you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Let's pray this morning. I'd like to ask the Lord to help us as we look at this psalm. Heavenly Father, I plead with you this morning that you would open our eyes to the essential truth that sin is sinful and wicked. It's destructive. It brings condemnation and ruin 
into our lives. Lord, help us. Help us to feel the effect of the sin on our life. And then help us to see you as the only answer. Help us to run to you, to cling to you. Merciful God, you who forgive freely because you have gone to such great lengths to pay for our sin. Lord, help us to understand this truth. I pray that you would convince our hearts so that we cannot deny it, that we are sinful and desperately in need of you. And then help us to turn to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a simple outline as we start here in Psalm 6. Just to kind of give you a feel for how the psalm goes. I'm not actually going to follow this outline. I take that back. I'm going to follow this outline reworded a little bit as I go through the, the psalm. But I want to just give it to you right up front so you kind of have an idea of where this psalm goes. Because this psalm, like some of the others, can be challenging. If you're going to read this psalm in your daily devotions, you know, you get up in the morning looking for a nice word and you want to be encouraged, this psalm might be a bit of a challenge. But I think there's a lot of excellent things here. There's some good things for us to see here. And I want to point you to them today. But there's four points here, four strophes we divide this to. Verses 1 through 3, we see a prayer for mercy and healing. In verses 4 and 5, we see a prayer for the Lord's renewed presence. In verses uh, 6 and 7, maybe, we see a confession of David's grief. And finally, in verses 8 through 10, a proclamation of David's faith. The outline I'm going to actually use as I preach through it is a little bit simpler than that. But these are the four elements that we see. Let me ask you a question as we start here this morning. Have you, like Martin Luther, like King David, have you felt the burden of your sin over against the righteousness of God? Have you seen just how sinful you are? Just how much wrong you've done? How do you feel when you know that you have sinned? These are important questions that come up as we study Psalm 6. I want you to notice, first of all, Verses 1 through 3, David's prayer. O Lord, how long? O Lord, how long? He says it this way, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? We might consider asking a question right off the bat. What is it that troubles a righteous man? The one who loves and wants to serve the Lord. I know the answer is already up there on the screen. But I want you to see it here. It's not the fear of death. David is not crying out in fear of death. Even though that's a very real possibility. He's not crying out because of the possibility of pain and suffering. The thing that really gets to his heart, the thing that strikes him, the thing that troubles him, 
is the Lord's anger towards sin. We can tell that because of the wording that he uses here in verse 1. He says, do not rebuke me. Do not chasten me. He doesn't want to be rebuked. That's publicly uh, exposed as wrong. That's what rebuke means. It means to reveal that something is wrong. He doesn't want to be chastened. That is to be brought under discipline. And, and this fear of rebuke, this fear of chastening, if you will, the presence of sin in his life brings great distress, even to the point of physical sickness and pain. Even though David doesn't mention in this psalm any specific sin, he's bothered by the thought that the Lord is displeased with him. He's bothered by the thought that the wrath of God would burn hot against him. That's what he says here. He mentions twice the Lord's anger and his hot displeasure. These words convey the idea of burning anger. You read sometimes in the Old Testament, it says that the Lord's anger was kindled against someone. That's the same concept here. It's kindling a fire. The heat of his wrath, the heat of his displeasure, that is what David fears. That is what troubles him. Is that God's anger would burn against him. But more importantly than that, he's troubled by the fact that he deserves it. He's troubled by the fact that if the Lord's anger burns against him, it's because he deserves it. It's because he has sinned. I think about that this morning. Can you imagine what would happen if the Lord judged each and every one of us here this morning according to our own thoughts, words, and actions? Could you imagine that? If the Lord judged you right now according to your thoughts, your words, and your actions? Of course, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. You can read Matthew 12 and verse 36. Jesus said, For every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Even our words, even the idle words that we speak, even the careless, thoughtless words that we speak, we will give account for, Jesus says. So what hope do any of us have when it comes to the day of judgment? I think of myself, my words, without a doubt, Without a doubt, my words will condemn me as a liar, as a cheat, as a hurtful and mean-spirited person. I know that to be true. Realizing that. Realizing that my own words, my own thoughts, my own actions rightfully bring the condemnation and the judgment of God on me. Ought to terrify. Ought to terrify us. It clearly terrified David as he wrote this psalm. And so he cries out to the Lord, Lord, do not rebuke me. Do not chasten me. Don't turn your wrath on me. And he cries out for mercy and forgiveness. He cries out to not be held accountable. That's what he's saying. He's crying out, Lord, don't hold me accountable 
Don't judge me according to my own deeds, words, thoughts. Lord, be merciful to me. Weakness. Weakness is the key to forgiveness. Do you understand that? Let me explain it. Weakness is the key here. At the moment when his strength is gone, he's at the end of his rope, he's completely wiped out, that is when David is in a position to receive mercy. You see, there's no sense in these opening verses in which David is making a deal with God. He's got nothing of value to offer. He describes his condition in very vivid terms, verse 2 and verse 3. He says, first of all, that he is weak. The word means feeble and without strength. You know, I... I was uh, Labor Day, um, got a call that, that Joe Biddle was going back to St. Luke's. And so we were at my folks' house, brought the family back home, dropped them off, and I went up to St. Luke's. And, uh, you know, I, I went into the emergency room, and she was in a room there, and I went in. And if you see Joe, the word feeble comes to mind. She looks like I could pick her up in one hand, you know. I mean, she's just... And this is the way she's looked for the last couple of years. Okay. But, but she looks like I could just like pick her up in one hand. She's so thin, feeble, frail. David here, the king, right? The mighty warrior of Israel. David is saying, that's how I am, Lord. Feeble. Without strength. I'm weak. I'm frail. He admits that he is impotent and fragile. How many of us would dare to admit such a thing? We make such a good show of being strong. And we deny the truth about ourselves, the truth that we are weak and feeble and desperately in need of God's mercy. Twice here David says about about himself. He says his body... His bones are troubled. Verse 3, he says his soul is greatly troubled. It means he's disturbed or he's vexed in his inner man. The guilt that he feels over his sin reaches to every part of him, his body and his soul. He is thoroughly exhausted of every resource whether physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental, he has nothing. Why does it seem that at the moment when we fall into sin, when we realize that we have once again, once again, fallen prey, to sin. And we're crushed under the enormity of our own weakness. Why is it that God seems to be nowhere to be found? It seems like God waits while we suffer at those times. 
Why is that? Well, Psalm 119.67 might give us a bit of an answer. In it, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. That affliction, that time of suffering and grief, and the weight of our sin and guilt for the psalmist brought him to a point of maturity. A point of maturity and obedience. Sometimes that's what God is doing in our life. We struggle with sin. We fall into sin. We grieve over it. We feel the weight of it crushing down on us because we are so weak. And still, God waits. He waits to bring us to maturity. To help us. So that like the psalmist, we can say now. Now after that, now I keep your word. Lord, you see, God works in us in those times of grief and weakness. He wants to mature us. He wants us in this position every time that we sin, we're driven to our knees in prayer, crying out for mercy and healing. That's where God wants us to be. He wants us to have that kind of tender heart. That when we sin, We are grieved in our spirit. We are crushed. We feel it in our bones and in our soul. And we're driven to cry out to Him. Motivated to do something about it rather than just shrug our shoulders and act like sin's no big deal. I can relate to David's prayer here. You know, there's a lot of things that I can endure. There's a lot of things I can put up with. There's one thing that terrifies me more than anything. And it's the thought that God... That God would chasten me in His wrath. That God would be displeased with me. That somehow I would be in a position where God would look at me and say, I've tried and I've been patient and I've waited and I've given you opportunity after opportunity and you just don't seem to be learning a lesson so now I've got to really ramp things up to get your attention. That's the thought that terrifies me. That's the realization when I commit sin. Crushes me. Lord, how could I do that? Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, don't judge me according to my works or I will be destroyed. Instead, be merciful to me. That's David's prayer. How long, he says. But he continues in the next verse. And we see, again, David's prayer, O Lord, return. O Lord, return. Verse 4, he says, Return, O Lord, deliver me. 
Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? He feels separated from God. Distant and isolated. Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt that way because of your sin? You've failed. You've done something you knew was wrong. And as a result, it just seems like the Lord is so far away. He's, he's distant. It just doesn't have that, that same intimacy. It's hard to know how do I approach Him? How could I possibly go into His presence? And what he really wants, what David wants, what we want is for, for anything else, more than anything else, we want God to be near. I think it reveals this, this idea to us that the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, His nearness is enough to drive away the guilt and shame of sin. This is why we want God to be near. You see, when God is near, sin must flee. When God is near, deliverance is close at hand. But here's a question. Why would the Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth, why would He come near to you or to me in our sin? Why would He come near? Why would He return when we have yet again sinned and offended Him and His righteousness? Why, indeed, would the Lord come near to us? We've already seen this in Psalms 1 through 5. But I'm learning to really appreciate this thought even more as I'm studying these Psalms. Why would, would the Lord come near? It is for His mercy's sake that He saves us. It is for His mercy's sake that He saves us. Because the Lord is merciful, we can pray. We can ask Him to come near, to deliver us, to save us from our sin and its terrible guilt. We need to understand that mercy is not just something God offers. It is part of who He is. It is His nature. So when we say, just like David, Oh Lord, return to me and deliver me. We are not asking for something that He has not already promised. Let me put it another way. God loved us so much that He gave His one and only Son to die on a cruel Roman cross, suffering terrible agony and shame to pay the penalty for our sin. He's already done that. If God has already paid that high of a price... What else is there left for him to pay? What more could he possibly offer than he has already offered? What more could he possibly give than the only begotten Son of God, the perfect and spotless Lamb? What could he give that would cost more than what he has already paid? You see, when we admit our weakness, 
when we admit our failure and our sinfulness and we cry out to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness, we are giving Christ's death its full due. We're recognizing that God has already made the payment for our sin. We are appealing to the very depth of God's heart that He would love and save unworthy sinners for His glory's sake. You see, we do not appeal to God for forgiveness on the basis of our uh, our ability. We don't come to God and say, God, forgive me. And if you do, here's what I offer. We don't come to God and say, God, forgive me because, you know, you love me so much. God, forgive me because I'm such a great guy. Forgive me because I'm so talented. I have so many resources. God, forgive me. Because you desire your own glory. That's what David is saying here. I realize as I'm going through this that I'm I'm blurring together two things that are distinct. And we're gonna, I'm going to separate them out as we go. And I'm going to try to make this very clear. Becoming a Christian and living the Christian life. Two separate things. But both of them are done on the basis of the gracious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not by our own good works. It's not by our religious actions. But by His mercy that He saves and cleanses us. The guilty sinner must come to the Lord seeking mercy and grace in order to be forgiven. The Christian who falls must also come to the Lord, confessing his sin and believing the Lord's promise to forgive and cleanse. Why does the Lord forgive? Why does God forgive us? Why does he offer mercy and forgiveness for sin? Because he is merciful. It is who he is. His great mercy His great mercy towards sinners brings Him glory. You see, when God demonstrates mercy to sinners, He receives glory. And if there's one thing God desires above all else, it is His own glory. That is what drives everything that God does. Bringing glory to Himself. I think that's exactly what David is getting at in verses 4 and 5. I see some people have read, especially verse 5, and they get confused. You see, verse 4 makes a lot of sense. Okay, Lord, return, save me in your mercy. Okay, God, God's merciful, He loves us, He'll save us. Okay, what about verse 5? What do we do with that? Because He says, for in death there's no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? Some people have misunderstood this verse. Where they've misapplied its teaching uh, to suggest that somehow when we die, we simply cease to exist. We enter into some sort of soul sleep, some sort of loss of consciousness kind of thing. But as my dad would say it, that's taking this verse and making it walk on all fours. We don't want to do that. First thing we need to remember is the psalmist spoke these words in the midst of a time of great grief and sorrow. This is an emotional outburst. We should be careful to avoid building an entire theology of the afterlife on what David said in a moment of great grief. 
But secondly, and more importantly, is this, and I think this is exactly what David is getting at. The Lord's glory is tied to His following through on His promise to forgive and restore sinners. You see, God has promised us that He will forgive and restore sinners who come to Him on the basis of His mercy. Right? He has not promised to forgive us if we come to Him on the basis of our good works and say, God, look at all the things I've done for you. He is under no obligation. In fact, He would contradict Himself He would make himself a liar if he forgave a single human being because they were good. God would make himself a liar. He would make himself a liar if he forgave a single human being because they did good things, because they went to church, because they got baptized, because they took communion, because they gave to the poor, because they tried to live a good life, because they tried to be honest. Any of those things, he would be lying if he did that. He cannot forgive sinners on the basis of their own actions and efforts. He can't do it because he would be contradicting himself. But what he can do, what he will do, because he has promised, is that every single person who comes to him seeking mercy because he is a merciful God, he will forgive. He will forgive. He will cleanse. He will heal. He will restore sinners who come to Him and say, Lord, I've got nothing to offer you. The only hope I have is I read in Your Word that You are merciful. And if You are not merciful with me, then I'm just going to be destroyed. So God, I have nothing left but Your mercy. And if somehow that fails, then I've got nothing. Lord, good thing is His mercy never fails. You see, when we come to Him that way, the mercy is always there. It's always abundant. never fails. He is merciful. He must be. Because His glory is tied to His mercy. You see, if He, if a sinner comes to Him and says, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I'm corrupt. I have nothing to offer. All I have is You because You love me. You sent Christ to die for me. And that's the only reason that I can come to You. God, forgive me. If somehow He were to fail to forgive that sinner, then God's glory would be stained God's glory would be lost. God would be proven to be untrue. God would be proven to be impotent. God would be proven to be less than Almighty God. You see? His glory is tied to His always fulfilling His promise to forgive sinners. That's what David, I believe, is saying. You see, if there's one thing the Bible says about God, it's that He is faithful. He will do what He's promised. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says, Even if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. David is simply pointing out here, I believe, the Lord's people praise and worship Him. Why do we praise and worship God? Because He has shown us mercy. Right? That's why we praise God. 
You see, if God was not a merciful God, why on earth would we come here and sing His praises? Forget that. No. We sing. We praise God. We worship Him because He has shown us mercy. If He were to fail in showing mercy, He would no longer receive worship. That is what David is saying. Lord, if you allow this sin to crush and destroy me, Lord, then you are turning your back on your mercy. You see, he's not threatening God. He's pointing out God. Your behavior consistent with your mercy and your desire for glory is to forgive and to restore and to deliver sinners. That's good news. God is faithful. So David prays, oh Lord, return. Lord, return. But he's not finished with his cry for mercy and we got to hurry up here. I'm sorry. I'm getting uh, a little excited by it. Okay. He goes on. In fact, he gets to the point now where he's beyond his ability to express his sorrow for sin in words. And so we see the next thing in verses 6 and 7, David's prayer. Oh Lord, my tears. This is where the psalm really struck me. This is where the psalm really hit me hard. David talks about his tears. He says, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. David here emphasizing his great sorrow. He's he's using exaggeration, overstatement, hyperbole here in order to drive this point home to show that he is overwhelmed with grief. He he floods his bed with tears. He makes it swim. I think it's pretty obvious that he didn't actually, you know, float around all night in his bed in a pool of tears. But I think we can say this. David was so moved by the sense of guilt and shame over his sin that he lost sleep. Lying in bed, crying about his sin. Crying. Weeping. Because he knew that he had offended his Lord, his God. Of course, this verse prompts me to ask. I don't like to ask this question, but it prompts me to ask. When was the last time that you were so grieved over your sin and its offensiveness that you wept? When was the last time that sin in your life moved you in this way? Does your heart break when you realize that you have sinned? Not because you get caught, but because you've sinned against the Lord who died for you? I'm convinced that one of the reasons we have such a weak an anemic Christianity in America is that so few men and women who claim to believe in Jesus have any real sense of the sinfulness of sin. We have hard hearts. We have dull consciences. we'll, We'll shed tears, you know, when our family pet dies or when the Packers lose in the playoffs again. Sorry, I had to throw that one out there. 
but we never shed tears over our own failure to live in holiness before our Lord. What really moves us? But I want to consider this verse from another angle. Uh, just let me throw this out there because we've got to move quickly through this. But when we understand just how sinful sin is, just how repulsive it is to God, when we understand how much sin harms us and how much it harms those that we love, then we're finally in a position to truly open our hearts before the Lord. I love this, what J.J. Stewart Perrone wrote many, many years ago. The heart can make all known to God thoughts and feelings and acts that we would be ashamed to confess to our fellow men. We fear not to confess to Him. You see, David went to the right place when he realized his sin. David wept. His heart was broken. Because David was was crying out to the Lord. He was going to the Lord. He was confessing his sin to the Lord. Nothing that you do shocks God. You know that? Nothing that you've ever done shocks God. He already knows it. He knew it before he sent Christ to die for you. He knew the sins you'd commit. He knew the addictions and the habits that would take control over you before he ever sent Christ It's good news because it means you can confess anything to him. He will never look at you differently than he does today. You see, we're afraid that others would find out about what we really are like and what we really do because then they would look differently at us. Then they would treat us differently. But the Lord never does. He already knows. He'll never treat you differently. Your husband or wife might not understand. Your best friend might stop talking to you if they knew what you have done, what you thought. But the Lord, He extends mercy to those who are broken over their sin. David's confidence in the Lord's forgiveness really comes through here as we get to the end of the psalm. And this is what I like about this. There's a positive note here. I didn't want this message to just be a downer this morning. It's tough. There's a positive note that we go to the last part when we hear David's prayer and he says, Oh Lord, you hear. Look at verse 8. Depart from me all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. I love verse 9. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Uh, there's a big change here between verses, uh, uh, verse 7 and verse 8. In fact, so much of a change that some people have suggested that verses 8 through 10 was actually added later by somebody else. I don't think that's true. I think verses 8 through 10 is David's expression of faith. You see, he's in this dark moment where his sin and the weight of his sin is crushing him. And yet, even in that dark place, David cries out to the Lord and he knows, he believes, because God is merciful that the Lord will hear. The Lord will not turn his back on the one who is repentant. I want you to see this. First of all, the Lord hears the groaning and cries of his people. This is a good thing. Not a single tear that he shed is wasted. 
Not a single one. When David got past the point where he could speak words, and all he had left was tears, those tears were not wasted. David was not putting on a show of feeling sorry for sin. He was casting himself upon the Lord's mercy. And those tears that were shed, those tears were not wasted. The Lord heard. He saw. And He would forgive. This is the promise that we hold on to. The Lord will forgive. That's what I I struggle with because as I wrote this message this week, I wondered if it would just come across like, man, this is, you know, 40 minutes of just down and hard, the weight of our sin and guilt and crushing us. The truth is, we have to be realistic about who and what we are. I couldn't avoid it. Even if I wanted to skip verses 1 through 7, I couldn't avoid it. We have to realize who we are. You are a sinner. Vile. Filthy. Offensive to God. Before you get angry, let me tell you this. I am an even greater sinner. I deserve nothing but contempt from Jesus Christ. The righteous one. The one who never entertained an immoral thought. The one who never spoke a hurtful word. Who never committed a dishonest action. But the same God who is perfect. So holy that he cannot even look upon sin. He made Jesus Christ to be sin for us. Because he is abundant in compassion. He has. He is abundant, overflowing with compassion. It never runs out. He never says, man, you just, you know, one sin too many. Now you went past what I can do. Now I'm no longer willing to help you. I'm no longer willing to forgive. Doesn't happen. Not only is he abundant in compassion, he pities those who have become enslaved to sin. So this morning, I want you to feel the full weight of your sin. I don't want to minimize it at all. I want to let its horror wash over us. It should. The reality of your sin ought to fill your senses with disgust. But at that point, rather than drowning in despair, turn to the Lord who is faithful and true and cry out to Him. We're going to sing this hymn in a minute. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but we're going to... Greg must have been thinking of the same line I was when he picked this hymn out. Charles Wesley's Depth of Mercy. That's what he wrote. Depth of Mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God His wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners, spare? He concludes that hymn, Still for me the Savior stands, shows His wounds and spreads His hands. God is love. I know. I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. And so as I speak to Christians this morning, 
Let's own our sin. Let's understand it in its full weight of how sinful and wicked, how wrong it is. But rather than despair because we are sinners, rather than despair because even as Christians we fail so many times, let's look to the Lord. Let's return to Him. He is merciful. He will forgive. There's another part of David's response that I want to mention, and I'm going to just get this really quickly and we're going to close. This applies especially to those who are not born-again believers, those who have never been forgiven of their sins. Maybe that's you this morning. You're here and you're not someone who's ever trusted in Jesus Christ, not someone who's ever become a follower of Him. David here speaks to his enemies, the men who are committed in their wickedness. They show no sorrow over their their sin. They, They have calloused hearts and he warns them to fear the coming judgment. That's what he says there in verse 10. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. You see, when David cried out, How long, O Lord? Some people might have gotten the idea that, that God was just going to sit, sit idly by and ignore it while his servant suffered. But that is a mistake. David's warning reminds us this, and I think we need to hold on this too. By faith, we can be confident the Lord will judge the wicked. God has promised to judge the wicked. You need to have no doubt this morning that the day of judgment is coming. And if you do not repent of your sin... You will face the consequences. He describes them here. He says that you'll be put to shame. That is, you'll be made a public disgrace. Greatly troubled. It's the same word that David used to describe himself back in verse 3. But see, the difference is the godly man is troubled by his sin. The godly man is vexed in his spirit because of his sin. The ungodly man refuses to allow that to touch him. But one day he will be troubled by the judgment of Almighty God. But today you also have the opportunity to repent, to turn back from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy and the God of comfort, the one who forgives sins and binds up the brokenhearted. If you've never been forgiven of your sins, if you've never turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, then today is your opportunity. You can come today to Him. Not because you're a good person. Not because you have so much to offer. But we come to Him and acknowledge that we are sinners. Rightly deserving condemnation. But instead, we are crying out for forgiveness, for mercy. And He will show mercy. Will you seek Him today? before it's too late. Let's close with a word of prayer.